If you're just joining us this week or haven't been here in a while, like I look over and I see Bev. Good to see you. Can you show us your scars? I'm so happy uh, to see a, a lot of people, but especially Bev, considering what you've been through. Welcome home. But um, we're getting to that point in the series where I start feeling a little bit down because we're about done. And uh, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. I told you before, I had a blast. I don't know about you, uh, but I've had a blast. So I don't know if you're happy that we're ending this or, or not, but you know, eventually a pastor will make everybody happy. You know, some of you are happy that we are not ending. Some of you are happy that I am ending. So, you know, eventually. But um, back in chapter three, the author of the letter talks to these Hebrew ancestors. And, and I pointed out when we started this that the word Hebrews is used on purpose. It is a likening back to when they were known as Hebrews, back when they were known as slaves, these children of Abraham being held in bondage in Egypt. And Hebrew was the, the word that was given to them. So the author of Hebrews is making a point. You who are ancestors of this promise to Abraham and also the ancestors of the slavery itself and everything that happened during the Exodus and what made us who we are and where we are today. But back in chapter three, he asked these ancestors who'd been worshiping God from a distance now for 3,000 years to consider that Jesus was a more faithful priest, high priest, because he was the son of man and he was the son of God. And then compared him as a human, in a human comparison, back in chapter three, compared him to one particular man that would get these Hebrews' attention, just to compare, be able to compare the two. Somebody that he could hold up as an example as unwavering faith. And yes, he is in that hall of faith that we studied two weeks ago. He is in that hall of faith. So back in three, it says, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our what? Of our confession, he's who we confess, was faithful to the one who appointed him just as who? Just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Moses, he reminds them of Moses. He reminds them of who Moses is to them. Just try to put yourself in their shoes. Who is Moses to them? to this point, if you're a, an ancestor, if you will, of these uh, Israelite Hebrew ancestors, who is Moses to you? Moses is the guy, isn't he? He's the man, yeah, he's the man. Abraham, Moses, and David, we're, we're talking you know, their Rushmore, if you will, but Moses is the one, there's never been one like Moses. And in fact, Moses said it himself, there's never been anybody like me. No one as humble as me. Right, But after nine chapters of what we've been studying, to where the author beautifully constructs or reconstructs, if you will, the tabernacle and the system within it, the cultic system of sacrifice within it, how he beautifully reconstructs it as Christ, our high priest, our atonement, our intercession, and our righteousness. The author now circles back towards the end of the book to this hero of faith to get them to ponder again, to get them before he signs off, I want you to ponder why you believe what you believe about Moses. 
Why does he hold such a purchase on your heart and soul? So the passage begins by asking these ancestors of the Exodus to compare their spiritual experiences. And whenever he asks them to compare their spiritual experience, guess what we get to do? We get to compare ours too, don't we? So take a look here in verse 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. The mountain he's talking about, which one is it? He's talking about Sinai, isn't he? He's talking about Sinai. When Moses brought Israel to Sinai, God wanted them to meet him. The whole reason they're at Sinai is because God wants them to meet him. If you look at your Jewish calendar, today is Erev Shavuot, which means the day before or the eve of Shavuot. Shavuot is the, is the um, ceremony or the feast, if you will, celebrating Sinai, celebrating God's revelation to Israel on Sinai. It lasts for three days. Erev begins tonight. After sundown, Shavuot begins and it will last until Monday. They celebrate to this day the revelation of God at Sinai. What was it that was revealed to them? His whole purpose was after 400 years of slavery, by the way, to Egypt, a religious nationalist power, if you will, one that used their religion to enforce their nation and to enforce Israel. Even their rulers were self-proclaimed deities, controlling them. God wanted those ancestors, wanted them to meet who? To meet him. To meet him. Because he promised their father Abraham so long ago a promise that they could worship in a brand new way, that one day they would be liberated, one day they would be free to worship this God in their own land, in a land of milk and honey. So a few years before, he met Moses on another mountain and said, go get my kids and bring them here. This is what I want you to do. I've got something for them. I have a revelation for them. And the revelation was him himself. Now our letter to the Hebrews says it didn't go well, did it? Those verses I just read, it didn't go well at all. It says that the mountain itself, which could be touched, he, he, he actually is making it sound like it's a bad thing that the mountain could be touched. But, but what's interesting is, yes, the mountain could be touched. It could be accessed. Now, he didn't want access at a particular time, but, but listen to this, just, just imagine this. It still could be touched, couldn't it? When was the last time any of these Hebrews uh, were able to meet a holy place without an intercessor, without some pagan priest telling them of how angry these gods were at them? How long it had been? Jacob? Joseph? 400 years. And the first invitation, God wants to let them know, guess what? I'm accessible. 
I don't live in some cabinet in some pagan temple back in a nation where you were held as slaves. I have heard the sounds and the cries of my people and I have come down. The letter says the trumpet and the words from God were terrifying and they begged him to stop. And all they hear is the mountain is so holy that it can't be touched. Even if your puppy strays onto it, stone your puppy. That's all they hear. But considering where they came from, that's exactly what their old God sounded like. Right? What are they missing? What's really happening here? Why were they there? Well, he told Moses to bring him here, and what he was saying was, I want you to offer them what I gave you, Moses. Because Exodus 33 tells us, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, what? Face to face. He asked a friend to bring all Abraham's children, the children that were promised Abraham's promise, to his mountain so he could give them the same opportunity to be his what? To be his friends, face to face, let's talk. Moses has done it. Look at him. If you believe him to be a hero, look at him. I've talked to him for days. I've talked to him for days on end, for a year now. He came up a mountain and stood right in front of me, and he's still alive here to talk about it. And as a matter of fact, he still likes it so much that he keeps coming back. So he brings them here. Yes, he puts them through three days of very elaborate preparation. Just what would be expected of these, of these pagan worshipers, these slave worshipers, these worshipers that worshiped out of, out of slavery and out of bondage. This is exactly what was told would happen. The purpose of temples, the purpose of, of priests and incantations and, and, and uniforms and, and all of those things. That's the purpose, is to remind them how holy they aren't and how holy he is. Prepare for the third day because the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of what? In the sight of all people. That's why it's sacred. It's not preparing Israel. It's preparing for him. What makes the mountain sacred? His presence. He's coming down in the sight of who? In the sight of all people. Again, not hidden in some pagan temple behind a priest's incantation, not stuffed up on a shelf, but down right there, right in their sight. So yeah, they're preparing. Yeah, they're preparing. And he says, no hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or human being, they shall not live. And yes, you think, okay, wow. But what is it they didn't hear? It says they were afraid of the trumpet. What does is, what is this verse say the trumpet was for? <laughs> when you hear the sound of the trumpet, what? Tell them they can come up. But all Israel heard was what? Don't touch it. That's all they knew. They're missing a perspective. They're missing something. They're even frightened of the trumpet itself. 
Even though the trumpet is there for a particular purpose, it's there as an announcement, it's there as a signal. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, tell them they can what? Tell them they can come up the mountain. So did they? Did they accept the offer of friendship from the living God of the universe? No. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a what? At a distance. So I ask, what are they missing? What perspective are they missing? Did they not hear God say what to do when they heard the sound of the trumpet? They heard it, they just didn't what? They just didn't trust it. Which, can you blame them? You've been in slavery for 700 years, being told by self-proclaimed human gods that you don't even have a God. If you had a God, you wouldn't be here. And now all of a sudden they're supposed to believe when a living God speaks from a mountain that they're just supposed to run up to him like they were his long lost children, which they were. They don't what? They don't trust it. And I don't blame them. They don't have a perspective yet, which what is God is trying to give them. He's trying to tell them, come get the perspective that who has? There's only one. There's only one that trusts him. There's only one that continues to go up the mountain. But they don't trust him. So they say to Moses, you what? You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will what? Is that true? If God continues to speak to them, if the trumpet continues to sound, will they die? No, but they sure think so, don't they? So what have they asked for? They've asked for just a little bit of slavery again. We're gonna go back and, 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 and hey, it, 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 was, it was nasty back then, but at least we could trust those priests and whatever anger they promised to take it for us. Which wasn't true. Because <laughs> Ra could rip the skin off of anybody who tried to lay out in the sun. The Nile could wash away anybody. The crocodiles of the Nile could eat anybody, right? So I think there, right there, is yes, it broke God's heart. It broke God's heart. Not that he didn't know it was gonna happen, not that he didn't anticipate it. The one thing beautiful, though, that, that the scriptures tell us, though, is that he's willing, even though he knows what's gonna happen, he's still willing to experience it in the moment. I, I think that that's one of my favorite things about our God, is that his foreknowledge does not keep him from experiencing the moments with you and me. Isn't it beautiful? So yeah, his heart broke. His heart broke right there. But there was one, right? The people stood at a distance while Moses did what? Moses draws near. Near to the thick darkness where God was. Is Moses afraid? Is he afraid of the darkness? Is he afraid of the volume? Is he afraid of death? He keeps coming. He draws near and he continues to. He's the only one. He seems to know something they don't. 
Revelation for him occurred on another mountain. The difference between them, God has revealed himself in a way to Moses that the people have not yet welcomed, that they are not open to. And it may sound exclusive to us. It may sound like, 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 like God is demanding that they stay or God is demanding that they stay at a distance. It may sound like that. But what's beautiful about this is that God will draw a line when it comes to worship. He knows that they're afraid of him. So he draws the line. He will not accept our fear as worship. He will not accept us coercing him him coercing us. He draws a line. I think that's beautiful. Any other God who might be in it for them, who's just looking for people uh, just to worship him so he could say, there, I've got them. Who does that sound like, right? Hey, I got them. They're mine. I got them, you know? Wouldn't care if they were afraid. Wouldn't care if it's a little worship. You know, I know they're scared now, but I can talk them out of it. God draws a line. It's love or what? Or nothing. He won't confuse our fear with love. He won't confuse our being coerced with freedom and or for worship. He draws a line. No fear, no coercion. No more slavery to incantations and codes by human priests and human deities. Heartless gods. But you're saying, Greg, wait, hold on a second. Even Moses was terrified, the letter says, right? You're right, they're quoting him. They're quoting him. But Hebrews is quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 9. And Deuteronomy 9 is not written for about 40 years where Moses is getting a perspective on Sinai. And he's lived with these, these distant worshiping uh, uh, relatives of the ancestors for 40 years now. And there are times when he's had it with them, right? And there are times when his patience has run out. And there are times, yes, when he failed and fell and sinned. But now they're on the verge of going into that promised land, of getting that promise, and he's writing them their final words. And he goes, you know what I remember about Sinai? You know what I remember about it in Deuteronomy 9? And Moses gives the reason that he was terrified. And it wasn't because he was terrified of God. He says, I was afraid that the anger that the Lord bore against you was so fierce that he would destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. Moses' concern was for who? For his people. That's a remarkable thing. Because when we first met him, Moses was in it for who? He was in it for himself. When God first met him and gave him his mission, his first and only concern, what if they don't believe me? What if my speech trips me up? You're going to send me back to Egypt? I wanted for murder back there. What if they make fun of me? What changed him? 
What turned him in from what turned him from a prince of Egypt who had no trouble coercing people to worship his his gods. One day Moses would be Pharaoh. One day he would be a god himself. What turned him in there that that would order a, a military strike if needed? Uh, that that oppressed his very relatives, his very ancestors. We're not even one hundred percent sure he remembers who he is. One who takes care of things by, by the way that, that a prince of Egypt would take care of things. When there's a conflict between group, two groups of people, he kills one of them. Get it? What, what took him from prince of Egypt into what? Into being a shepherd. And now all of a sudden he's concerned for these children the same way that he was concerned for his father-in-law's sheep. What's well, simple. We already said it. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. He's the only one. He's the only one willing to listen. He's the only one willing to sit down. He's the only one that trusts God with this relationship. 40 years of face-to-face revelation. The only one who begins to reflect on the unbelievable. Think about that. He's the only one that will begin to move on what this is really about. To speculate, to understand, to ask God questions. To walk with him and talk with him. The only thing that God has ever wanted from his children, from Adam and Eve all the way to you and me. You ever make an appointment with me and you, want, and you want to say, Pastor Greg, help me know God's will for my life. I can already tell you right now, his only desire and will for you is that you walk with him and talk with him. Oh, so, so you're saying that he wants me to follow him. No, nope. he wants to, wants to walk with you and talk with you. And after you do that, then yes, you'll need to make a decision. But he's not gonna mess with that decision. All he's concerned about is wanting to spend time with you. By the way, spending time with him is the best shot we got at making the right decision. And I'll go on to say after 35 years, it's our only shot. The relationship changes everything. It doesn't change what happened at Sinai, nor does it change the God at Sinai. It doesn't change God's desire at Sinai. But what it could do, if they just noticed, what it would eliminate their fear. It would make the mountain what it should be. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we can do that. We can now have Sinai the way it should be. You've come to Mount Zion, he says, right? Not Sinai, but Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We have a mountain of the living God. No one brought it to you on tablets. No priest offered intercession for you. But to him, right in where, right where, right into heaven, it says, we have access to him in heaven. Along with who? Along with angels. 
You can walk right into this assembly. Notice he, he says that he even calls God the what? The judge of all. You're welcome in there, even though he's judge. Do you have anything to fear from the judge? Not according to the author of Hebrews. Not if you have our high priest, right? Don't have to fear judge, being judged because you've already been judged by the perfect spirit of righteousness. Well, come on in. Come up the mountain. Better yet, the mountain has come to you. It's come to us. You can walk right in. Why? Because you can come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of who? than the blood of Abel. He is the firstborn. And if you're in Christ, you become the assembly of the firstborn. Our church is the church of Christ. Our church is the body of Christ. If he is in the assembly, we're in the assembly. We're on the mountain. Why? His blood, his willingness. Not a tinge of doubt, not a tinge of fear. None of the fear of Sinai comes creeping through here. Better than Abel's. Remember that this is referring back to the hall of faith. Remember the, the ones that appeared to have the perfect resume were the two that came first, Enoch and who? And Abel, right? But he's, he's pointing out, Abel's not there because he had a perfect resume. Abel's there because of his faith. And yes, his blood was shed, but his blood can't do anything. Not even Abel's. God is not appeased by the blood of a decent and good guy. Romans 8 says that. Romans says, says that, you know what? Uh, humans, um, I can picture, he says, I can picture humans uh, maybe dying for a good guy. In other words, I'd give my life for somebody who I knew was good. That's more of an even trade. But in Romans, that's when he concludes, but while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. Abel seemed to have a perfect resume, but his blood does what? His blood does nothing. God is not appeased by the blood of a decent and good guy. In fact, the, that the notion, in fact, the notion that the father is angry and needs appeasement is what needs to be put away if we believe that Christ is our high priest and our righteousness. By the time Hebrews writes this, there have been, there have been uh, people for thousands and thousands of years sacrificing innocent children to angry gods because they think that that blood will do something with angry gods. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what? Moses is the proof of that. Moses is the proof. He's not an angry God who needs appeasement. didn't torture his son because he needs something to be appeased? Who are we worshiping? And the author of Hebrews is saying Moses is proof of that. Moses keeps going into his presence. Moses trusts him. Moses trusts what God has done for him and continues to do in him. 
God even, <laughs> I'm not sure, but forgive me if, this, if, if I haven't fleshed this completely out, but it just came to me. God is even willing to allow Moses to think that he changed God's mind. If God was selfish at all, do you think he would allow that with one of his puny little worshipers? But Hebrews is saying that Moses is the proof. Consider this picture. Picture the father without Jesus. Picture the father behind the veil without our high priest and perfect sacrifice. Think of the story of the golden calf. You remember just after on Sinai, just afterwards, he called Moses up the mountain and he begins giving Moses what this thing is going to look like, what the author of Hebrews is trying to deconstruct. You know, this method now, this system, if you will. He's, he's giving him all the instructions for the tabernacle. He's giving him the instructions for the priesthood. He started talking about being neighbors with each other. This is, this, these are the rules that you'll have and everything. He's gone up there and he's been up there a long, long time. And while they were up there, do the Hebrews and the ancestors of these children of Abraham, are they patient, waiting? What did they do? Convince themselves they needed another God. I'm glad that one went back up his mountain. I'm glad that one quit talking. Let's get control of this situation. Let's do what we used to do when we were slaves. Let's make our own God. So God tells Moses what's going on. He has the tablets. He comes down the mountain. He catches them in the act. He asks who is on God's side. Who immediately said they were on God's side? The Levites. And you think, wow, yes, the Levites, the ones that will operate this system and everything else. Did you ever ask yourself, where were the Levites before Moses came down? <laughs> yeah. But you bet, I'm gonna raise my hand too. That's right, I was just offering something to that calf, but if you're gonna ask Moses, me, I'm on God's side. He commands them to strap on their swords and they go kill. Brother, friend, neighbor is what they were commanded to do. 3,000 end up dead. See, to an angry God, there's no other way out of this, right? Somebody's gotta pay. Sin, righteousness, and judgment, the, the, they have to be evened out here. And so when it's all done and they're all standing there knee deep in their own relative's blood, okay, God says this. He says, today you've ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of a son or a brother, they killed their own sons. They killed their own brothers. They killed their own fathers. And he says, so have brought a blessing on yourselves today. Now, I don't know how you read that, and if you read it in another verse, it says that God has given you a blessing if you've done this. I like this right here, because what I think is really coming through here is, do you feel blessed? The whole nation was worshiping a golden calf and trying to give that calf credit for what God has done for you, so we wiped out 3,000. Is that enough? He's taking their, their pagan ways of worship and practice and throwing it back at them. Is that enough? Is this the blessing? He gave them a whole day to ponder this. Violence, death, 
What's the difference between the angry gods of Egypt demanding blood and this God here if you think that this is what God demanded? It's it. It's all they're left with. By the way, standing there knee deep in blood, and guess what's still there? The calf is still right there. And God is still up on that mountain. Meaning what? What's changed? Nothing. And can they do anything about it? They tried. But what could they do about it? Nothing. Commit a sin to cover up another sin? All who worship angry gods who need appeasing, this is all you're left with when the anger is appeased. Does it make everything right? Does it stand up to judgment? Be ye perfect. So Moses comes up with a crazy idea. Crazy idea the next day. He says to the people, you've sinned a great sin, but I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. That may sound like he's willing to go up and, and, and sacrifice himself, but to me what he's really saying, what he really is saying is, maybe we can ask. <laughs> maybe we can just ask him. Because guess what? We're out of options otherwise, right? Maybe I can ask. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you've written. Please, if you could forgive them, that would be great. But if you can't, then take me, right? Take me. Moses has a little way to go, doesn't he? But the thing that we're, that we're missing is that the only man, the only human, the only son of man who has a face-to-face -face relationship with God is the only one that will accept the mountain, to, the invitation to come up the mountain, and he's the only one that even conceives of the fact that maybe we can ask God for forgiveness. Where to get that? Where to get the notion to just ask? He spent 40 years with him. He knows who he is. Do you think he asked knowing whether or not he would or not? I think Moses knew. All we had to do was ask. And he's the only one that even has the idea that that father, that that God up there loves you. So if he does love us, then maybe we can ask, right? By the way, you spend any time walking and talking with God, you better get used to that because transactions like that happen all the time. Abraham walks and talks with God and he thinks that he can bargain for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He just didn't quite trust God enough to go all the way down. God already proved to him the numbers meant nothing, right? Where'd he start with? Where did he end up? The numbers didn't mean anything, did it? Abraham just didn't trust to go all the way down. But I guarantee you, if he'd have walked with God just a little while longer, he would at least got the, mo the, the notion, if you will, that maybe, just maybe, he would save the people of Sodom and Gomorrah if he asked. Amen? 
but the Hebrews won't get it. And according to the author of Hebrews, it's gonna take about 3,000 years. But it takes 3,000 years to get to the point to where God says, let me show you. Let me reveal to you what you might have missed on Sinai. I can reveal to you even what Moses missed on Sinai. That the real power is in God that he'll do something loving only because they ask that the real power there is revealed to us in Jesus. See, Jesus shows up and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I will forgive if you just what? If you just ask. If you want to know what the Father was like, if you want to know what he was like, what Moses saw when he walked and talked with him, he said, you just look at me. The word became flesh and walked among us. All they have to do is recognize their inability to do anything about it. And maybe the only one with the power to do something will do something. See, before that, it was 4,000 years, 4,000 years of just kind of rolling the dice. Ask Grady, that's, that's what we've been saying. We, we, we talked about the Father without Jesus. We talked about the, what, what Israel may have uh, known about this God before. And you rolled the dice when you worshiped him, right? You're gonna get a blessing or you're gonna get a plague, right? And by the way, you're gonna get plagues for the stupidest reasons. 7,000 of us die because David made a stupid decision to take a census. What? So by the time that Jesus comes, can you blame most of Israel for not wanting or trusting the Father? You with me? Genesis 12, Abram's blessed. Why? Because he put his wife in danger by putting him in Pharaoh's harem? What? Pharaoh's the only one that makes sense out of that one. Pharaoh goes, why did you lie to me? I came this close sitting against your God. Here, take a whole bunch of my stuff and your wife and leave. You don't know what you're gonna get, right? What do you get in the hands of God the Father? He's an enigma, isn't he? For 3,000 years, he's been an enigma to these guys. Well, the only reason he's an enigma to them is because they're the relatives of the people who stood off at a distance and claimed that we could worship him intimately. They stood off at a distance while only a handful of men and women wanted to walk into his presence. So much so that when he comes, there's only a handful of people who get it. Crazy old man, crazy old lady, and a bunch of shepherds. They're the only ones who get it. So when Jesus says this, that's what he's talking about. On that day you will ask nothing of me. Very truly I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will what? He will give it to you. Until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be what? May be complete. A new relationship with the Father. A new perspective with the Father. Jesus is the key to a direct relationship to him. Until now, nothing. Until now, yes, it was a roll of the dice. We had a reason to be afraid, but our fear was also completely stoked and kept because we would not walk into his presence, that we stand at a distance and claim to worship him. 
But after? I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. You have to remember when he's speaking this. When he's speaking this, it's the night before he's crucified. You with me? He's about to show you exactly how the Father feels about you. He said, up until now, it's only been figures. It's been parables. It's been me healing. It's been me teaching. But tomorrow... The perfect sacrifice is made. And if you're looking for any other revelation that the Father loves you, you're 2,000 years too late. There's not a further revelation for us that he loves us than what he did for us that day. A new relationship with the Father. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. It's been figurative till now. It's been figurative. But he says, on that day you'll ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, have come into the world again, and I'm leaving the world and am going to the Father. The Father himself loves you. If you believe that Jesus loves you, then you can be assured that the Father loves you. Because Jesus is the absolute revelation of the Father because he is the Father. When we pray to the Father, we do not find an unwilling ear. He's as predisposed to us being answered uh, now because of the real relationship that he offers with him through Jesus. I'm not arguing that Christ is our high priest, but I am arguing this. It's not a typical intercession. He intercedes for a God which he is. See, but, but to an ancient people who couldn't picture anything without a priest, he says, okay, okay. What if the priest was the God that the priest was interceding for? It would make it much simpler, wouldn't it? If nothing else, it's a whole lot simpler. I'm here to see the priest. Wait a minute, you're God, yeah. Well, I was here to see the priest to pray to you for me. God says, how about I be that priest and you pray to me? Is that okay? I know it's confusing. Let's walk and talk a while. God's got this, doesn't he? This is their new joy. This is our new joy. Jesus has no choice before but to carry out what appears to be revenge. Eye for an eye and all of that is an appeasement to a people who can't see, who can't trust yet, because they haven't had God truly revealed to them yet. But Hebrews says, we got something else because of it all. And this is how he'll finish. What we have, what we have can't be shaken, what we have can't be taken away. See to it, you don't refuse him who's speaking. Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, see to it that you don't refuse to him who's speaking for those old do not escape when they refuse to him warned them on earth, much less we escape who turn away from who warns us from heaven. We can't turn away from this. Remember when he said, therefore, since we have such a cloud of witnesses, 
can't turn away from this. Why? Because his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, he invited us because of Christ, we walk right in to the kingdom of heaven. We're in that assembly. If Jesus is there, you're there. And he's saying that that kingdom cannot be shaken. This one will. This one has a whole lot of shaking to do. But you and I, we live in a kingdom that can't be shaken. Since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. For God is a consuming fire. By the way, him being a consuming fire, we have no reason to even fear that. I want him to consume me. Because consuming fire in him, in his perspective, with Jesus, is just a way to purify. It's just a way to perfect. It's just a way to give us zeal. Zeal to what? To go and do and be called and be the compassionate, merciful disciples and apostles we are called to be. This is the fear and the reverence and the awe that we give our Father. We're not even afraid. Why? Because we've come to Mount Zion. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So, I know. Even with all this sometimes, though, with all that's been revealed, the church still seems to lean back and look for something else, don't we? We still go to these passages in Exodus and uh, in all of these places, and we worry just a little bit. And, and, and it kind of becomes, for Christians, it kind of becomes, uh, yeah, I understand who I am in Jesus, but man, that father, I don't know. So we end up using scripture as a weapon. We end up using our self-righteousness to look better than someone else. We end up looking for every substitute we can find. And we forget that our weakness is our strength. And our shakeable is his unshakability. See, the people have chosen to try and relate to a living God on a dead tablet. And sometimes Christians try to relate to a living God on dead paper pages. When Moses came down, he knew something was going on. Moses comes down with a tablet. So just one, I'm, I'm gonna leave you to, with just this one perspective. If nothing else, what we believe about Jesus being this mediator, what we believe about living on Mount Zion, the city of the living God, what we believe should at least change our perspective on even what we read in scripture. In other words, if you don't picture, if you can't picture Jesus in this or doing this, then, then we've got to get at it some other way. You with me? Vengeance, violence, all these things. If, if you can't picture Jesus doing it, then I'm sorry, you can't picture the Father doing it. 
You can't picture fear and coercion to an angry father just because we happen to worship the loving son. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I, I, I won't go in and ask for you. I don't have to go in and ask for you. I will not go in and ask for you. Why? Because the Father himself loves you. We have this picture that Jesus goes in and has to calm the angry father down, like I used to try to do with my mother with my father. Jesus says, no, I'm not going in there. I don't have to. You go in there, for he loves you. So real quick, what it did for me is change the perspective of why Moses smashes the tablets. Moses smashes the tablets, we think, because he's angry. This self-indignation uh, you know, that, that the one guy, the one innocent guy in all of this, he's mad because these children are, are idolizing uh, you know, and not worshiping their God. So he has a right to be angry, and he, he smashes it out of anger. But what if it was something else? What if he knew that the only thing those tablets could do would be to condemn them? He knows. He's read those. He heard them. He heard them with his voice. He saw God write them down. They have completely violated the first three, probably the first four. Maybe he smashed them because he didn't want to remind them of the condemnation that they had just put themselves under. And he knew for a fact that the tablets would do them absolutely no good. So he doesn't run in there in the middle of them and say, look what you guys did. He smashed them before he even got there. And you know why I know? Or I really believe that that's why he did it? Because that's what Jesus would do. And it's what he's done for us. The living law sacrificed himself. So the written law would no longer condemn us. It should change everything. It should change who we think God is. It should change who we think we are. It should change who we think each other is. It should change who we think we should be reaching and who belongs and who doesn't. It should change everything. And if it doesn't, just take a trip up the mountain. Take a trip up the mountain to the mediator of our new covenant. And always remember that when we get to begin to dissect and we start to think, well, maybe the father, maybe the son, uh, good, not so good, uh, maybe, just maybe, remember where we've been. The author of Hebrews told us, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, right there on Mount Zion. And still calls us to come up. I am sorry to be getting to the end of this, but thank you for holding on with me.